Hello, everyone, and welcome to Keith Crosby Out of My Mind. This is Podcast 020, Podcast 20, part of our season entitled Christ, the Christian, and the Culture, and it's part of our mini-series within that season entitled Understanding Addiction. It's a four-podcast mini-series. This is the second one in that series, where we have a biblical conversation about this issue, addiction, that faces so many people in the body of Christ. So join us over the next 20 minutes or so as we provide you a bird's-eye-view perspective of this complex issue that confronts many people within the culture, the church, and you as we use God's Word to make sense of it all. And at the end of the podcast, we'll point you to additional resources for further study and help just in case you want to dig a little bit deeper or you have a loved one struggling with this type of issue. In the meantime, let's get started. Today's episode is entitled The Physiology and Psychology of Addiction because there are physical and emotional aspects intertwined that are almost inseparable within this matter of addiction. So let's talk about the physiology and psychology of addiction. All right, so we're back at addiction. This is our second episode on addiction. Uh, Last week, we talked about the morality of addiction and how it is a choice that people make. It's choosing to sin. So this week, now the physiology and psychology behind the addiction. You want to expand on that a little bit, Keith? Sure thing, Mark. This is definitely a multi-episode transaction because addiction is like an onion and it has so many layers and so many victims. You know, it's like an onion and it's like a hand grenade. Like a hand grenade. What do you mean by a hand grenade? Well, a hand grenade, when it blows up, usually kills its intended victim or the person that it lands near. But the problem is, besides the target, shrapnel radiates outwardly over a zone lacerating and wounding many innocent bystanders. And I do want to be careful about this. I'm not saying that the addict isn't a victim or anything like that. But it's just so damaging to children, to friends, to relations, to to business associates. And, you know, last time, like you said, we talked about the morality and the theology of addiction. We called addiction sin, not a sickness. And I hope I carefully explained why it's it's more of a self-injury. And that said, I really want to be clear here, Mark. Nothing that I've said in any way diminishes the very real suffering of the addict, let alone their families, friends, and other loved ones who have to pick up the pieces after them. Yeah, you know, at, at the end of the day, addiction... Uh, it radiates so much further out than just the one person who's trapped in that, who's stuck in that, who's um, chosen to to live in that life of sin. And so, so thank you for for clarifying that. Yeah, and I, again, I don't want to minimize the suffering of the addict and everybody else. It's it's all bad. It's all sad. It's all terrible. But in the end of the day, there's always hope in this because we trust in a sovereign, omnipotent God who does all things well and wants the best for his children if they will yield to him. And therein lies the trouble for many, submission and surrender to Christ. Okay, so let's probably get back to the, to the topic here that we're going to talk about today, the physiology and psychology of the addiction. Right, that's the episode title, because addiction and substance abuse attacks the human being as a whole person at different levels and in different ways. And here's how it works. Drugs, uh, alcohol, gambling, porn, sex, smartphones, technology, their use and abuse trigger physiological, physical reactions in the body and in the brain. Now, the consequences vary between being overly tied to your smartphone, of course, and substance abuse. But all of them trigger hormones and sensations and chemical reactions that the body increasingly craves. 
and, and, and it craves it in increasingly larger amounts. And stopping that process can be difficult, very difficult indeed. It becomes a physical and emotional issue. That's why people tend to, quote-unquote, fall off the wagon, or, or to use a medical term that I don't like, relapse. Relapse rates are so high with substance abuse and other forms of addiction. You see, regardless of the expense, the location, the duration, or the method of rehab, success rates hover between 17 and 21% over five years. Over five years. I, man, that's mind-boggling. Regardless of the expense, location, and duration, um, those rehab rates, what did you say, it was 17%? Yeah, 17 to 21% over five years. The success rate, whether you're in a facility in Beverly Hills or a facility in Biloxi, Mississippi, the success rates are pretty much the same. No matter how much you spend, no matter how long you stay, no matter where you are, ultimately, it comes down to a matter of mindset. Some would say psychology or, or, or some mental aspect, but we understand that when you talk about mental things sometimes, and I don't mean mechanistically, but uh, psychologically, the word psychological, the, the, the root word there is suke, which means the soul. It really comes down to the person's soul. It affects them spiritually and physically. And the other problem with the psychological aspect is you have to remember that an addict loses his or her mind to some extent as their rational faculties degrade due to the drug abuse. And this becomes almost an insurmountable obstacle over time because the drug becomes their god, their all-consuming passion. And each fix represents an act of worship, and it becomes their single-minded focus. So how would you say that these addicts lose their, their way or lose their mind? What happens with that? Well, that's an important question, Mark, and it often baffles and confuses their family, too. How does an addict reach the point cognitively where they value their drug more than their family or their friends or their children or their sex or food, or water, or shelter, and even recovery, because it is a physical and mental thing. As a counselor, I've worked with a number of addicts over the years, and some beat the habit, and some do not. In my previous church, there was a large number of addicts there. It was a church of several thousand, 6,000 people in kind of an urban setting. We had about 150 to 200 recovering so-called addicts there. And as some of those became my friend, they all told a similar story. The needle, the pipe, the bottle, the pill becomes your very best friend, your closest confidant, like family, only better. It becomes an almost spiritual condition where you're seeking a spiritual peace that only the drug provides, and the substance induces a peace or some kind of uh, pleasure. It's Like I said, it's a spiritual feeling or, or a religious experience and as hard to fathom as it is, people will forego shelter, warmth, water, and care, and even submit themselves to exploitive relationships until they waste away and die just to get a fix. And people, you know, they die by overdose, they die by violence, disease, organ failure, but this is what they want. This is what they think they want, and they lose their rational thought process almost. How does this happen? Like, I guess for me, it's hard to understand why someone could become so dependent on an outside substance. 
Well, let me try explain this and to keep this simple and non-technical. When people are high or stoned, they do feel better. At least they think they do. Remember, any type of sin, while you're in the middle of it, you're doing it for fun. You're doing it because it feels good pretty much, pleasurable even. But then the drug wears off and reality sets back in. Talk to an addict and most will readily admit that they are killing themselves and harming so many other people. But their habit always, always requires another dose. And over time, that dose needs to be in greater and greater quantities to satisfy the urge. With the next dose, that good euphoric or numb feeling returns. The addict becomes emotionally and physically dependent and progressively worse. They, they lose perspective. They lose touch with reality. And the trouble really starts when the body requires it, when the body demands it. So why don't you talk a little bit about that idea of the body demanding it, that physical just need for this this drug. All right. It's hard to separate or divorce the emotional from the physical, but complicating or intensifying this problem are physiology and biochemical issues and the effect that they have on the body and the mind on both. The drug affects the endocrine system, the hormonal system. As a person enters into these altered pleasurable states, the body's glandular system releases hormones like dopamine or a neurotransmitter that reinforces the body's desire for this drug and the altered state it produces or induces. So the mind wants more and more and the body wants and needs and demands more. The body can become like an angry two-year-old throwing a fit or a tantrum as it expresses its desire for the drug and as this desire for the drug is intensified by reinforcement through the secretion of these hormones and from the glandular system this adds to withdrawal symptoms like sweats nausea anxiety tremors and the mind you know becomes disengaged because the body wants this and and the mind stops filtering behaviors or comments or things. Or worse, the mind becomes committed to the goal of getting more drugs that the body wants, regardless of the consequences. The body's need overcomes the will, overcomes restraint. And the only way to satisfy the body's rage is more drugs, resulting in more hormonal secretions, which reinforces the addiction, and more mental and physical dependence, and an increased demand for the drug. And people make similar mistakes accommodating a a raging two-year-old, right? He makes his demands, you give in, he wants more. It's the same with the biochemical thing in the body. And this is one of the paths to overdose, because more and more drugs, which aren't regulated, you know, crack or methamphetamine or fentanyl sometimes, the qualities are inconsistent. And so the person takes more and more. Sooner or later, he takes one version that's more powerful than the previous, and he can overdose. It's like a game of Russian roulette. The more drugs the body gets, the more hormones it secretes, the more it wants. And this same type of mechanism, by the way, is present with gamers and gamblers, except with drugs, You have the double whammy of introducing habit-forming chemicals into the body, which only intensify the hormonal thing, and it adds to an additional dimension of danger and the eventual physical death. Now, getting back to the psychological aspect for a moment, as time passes and addictive forces progress, the conscious mind grows to fear the absence of drugs and their effect. And so the the addict becomes anxious and less stable, more willing to sacrifice anything to keep the supply going. And here's a more graphic example. Have you ever tried to reason with a starving mountain lion? 
Uh, no, uh, have not done that and uh, probably won't ever, hopefully. Well, let's hope not. But addicts can be like a starving mountain lion in a quest for food. The hunger drives them to relentlessly invade residential spaces until they are captured, imprisoned, or killed. That hunger must be satisfied for its survival. Well, in the case of an addict, it's a matter of perceived survival. And just like a starving animal, addicts won't listen. They can't be reasoned with because their minds are becoming increasingly and irreparably damaged to the point that they they lose coherence. Their appetite for their drug must be satisfied at all costs, and they will do anything, like a mountain lion starving for food, to get what they want. And the addict becomes more and more like an animal, a creature driven by impulse and instinct rather than a thinking, rational, reasoning human being created in the image and likeness of God. Human beings created in the image and likeness of God have the ability lacking in other creatures, animals, namely will, reason, and a combination of both, which results in wisdom. But all this goes out the the window with drugs, emotional, mental, stability, restraint. The drug damages the will. The addict's ability and desire to reason, to think, to change are eroded and degraded and gradually destroyed. Addiction, as it progresses, overwhelms reason. We described this process the last time, I think in episode 19, talking about the morality and theology of addiction, referring to James, you know, uh, where we are tempted and carried away by our own lusts or desires. And so eventually it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, James 1, 13 through 16. And that, that's why getting between an addict and their quest for drugs is like getting in between a mother bear and her cubs. And we know what the proverb says about a mother bear and her cubs. You do not want to tangle with them. So depending on how far down the continuum of addiction they go, sooner or later you can forget about reasoning with them because reason will be beyond them. Okay, so that all seems pretty hopeless uh, when I think about you know how we do reach addicts and how... How do you hear these success stories, these people who have actually been addicted to drugs or, or been stuck in this lifestyle and, and have, have gotten out of it, gotten away from it? And so I guess just talk about maybe for a little bit where the hope is for these addicts. It, it sounds like the drugs just basically take over, but, but we've heard success stories and I think there is hope there. There is, Mark. Where there's God, there's hope, you know, is the... Angel said to Mary at the Annunciation of the Coming of the Messiah, the first Christmas, nothing is impossible with God, but I want to inject major league reality here. I hate to say this, but the success stories are more the exception as opposed to the rule. We talked about this a little bit a little while ago in our conversation here. 17 to 21% success rate isn't very high. For every successful or miraculous rehab or recovery, there are at least five to ten fails, and I know that sounds depressing. Yeah, so is that why most people don't really see rehab through to the end? Yeah, there are many reasons, but first and foremost, you don't break a bad habit. That's what addiction is at its root in a month. Logistically and mechanistically, apart from drugs, it takes about six weeks to form a regular habit. Most habits most people form are not intensified by drugs or further complicated by bodily secretions or brain chemistry. And, and, and so it's, it's hard. It's difficult. And another reason for the high failure rate is, and I say this in quotation marks, friends. Remember that people seldom, if ever, do drugs in a vacuum. And so there are those around them who will continue to affirm them, who will continue to uh, cause them to stumble. 
there's a drug crowd that's only too happy to uh, enable them, to sponge off of them, to manipulate them, and otherwise aid and abet an addict in his quest for drugs because they want the drugs too. They'll even make excuses for them. Another danger, and this sounds counterintuitive, are newly sober friends they meet in rehab and connect with after rehab, which is a disastrous mistake. They need to be away from people like that because one will cause the other to stumble. You know, two recovering addicts aren't really able to help each other. And then there's a failure rate that is also due to well-intended family members who enable them, who keep bailing them out time and time again. An addict needs to hit rock bottom in order to break the addiction. And there's almost always a family member who, because they love them, they're too inclined to believe that when the addict says, this time I really want to change this, give me some money, they go ahead and do it, or they bail them out of jail, or they do something that facilitates or enables them to continue in their addiction. The hope is that the addict will hit rock bottom before they die or do something really, really extreme. And it's hard or painful for a loved one to watch and wait and allow that process to run its course. The main impediment to hope and recovery also is the addict's pride. Many addicts have a sense of entitlement, a sense of victimization. Their problem isn't their fault. They never get what they deserve. Life isn't fair. And that is the kiss of death. They are at fault because they've chosen to abuse drugs. People will also talk to you about self-esteem. This is another deadly idea. They say, oh, the addict has low self-esteem. Let me tell you, putting your loved ones and your life at risk for a drug requires a lot of self-esteem. Putting yourself and your addiction ahead of your family or your children or your spouse or your career takes a lot of self-esteem. Invariably, addicts' self-esteem is too high, which brings us back to pride. So until the addict hits rock bottom, pride will prevent rescue and redemption. And the sooner they hit rock bottom, the better. I cannot emphasize this enough. So, Back to self-esteem. Think about it. If a person is truly self-loathing with self-esteem, they will not elevate themselves above the law, their needs above the law. They will not elevate their drug to godhood because they rightly understand that God is God and they are not. And so this is what happens. But let's, let's get back to hope. Hope requires a change in thinking and a change in direction. Of the 17 to 21 percent that make it, so to speak, that's less than one in five, all experience what some people and what clinicians may call a significant emotional event, an SEE. And what that means is this. Something happens, they often call it hitting rock bottom, where they see clearly the situation they're in. Some people call it something of a religious experience. But from my vantage, Mark, not just any religious experience will do. Real change, inward change, we know, comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It starts through a supernatural encounter with a supernatural God. It's a 2 Corinthians 5.17 experience. They become new creatures, and old things begin to pass away, and all things tend to become new. Uh, it's an Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 thing where God takes away their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh, and they're able to do what they could not do before in the power of God. So these significant emotional events, uh, do you think that that's kind of where you wind up hearing a lot of the um, religious talk or spiritualism that happens in, in these rehabs or these Alcoholics Anonymous uh, a lot of times, you know, you hear the stories of God was just so real to me or showed up this really 
crazy way. Um, and so would you say that that's where a lot of that stuff comes from? It does. You know, there are people who come to Christ through rehab programs and even through Alcoholics Anonymous. But what you have to be careful of is this. They have a way of saying, well, I believe in a higher power, power which I choose to call God. God has named himself. And just believing in any God isn't enough. James 2.19 says that even the devil believes in God and shudders. And so like an enemy combatant or a terrorist, the addict has to lay down his or her arms and surrender their will to God. Then they learn to walk and grow as a Christian by taking baby steps. And that's where this process of change comes in. We call it sanctification or spiritual growth. You've got to depend on God and no one and nothing else. It's not just mere mental assent. It is soul surrender. And once you enter into that relationship with God through Christ by faith, your world will begin to change. Your eternal destination already has, and God will provide you increasingly uh, new abilities to do what you could not do before as an addict. But real change is supernaturally empowered. And sometimes an addict will talk a lot about God, and there'll be a lot of God talk, and they give mental assent, but they do not surrender their will. And that is the difference between success and failure, between a professing Christian and a real Christian. When you surrender to Christ and the Holy Spirit indwells you, you're on a new road. It's a difficult road, and but difficult doesn't mean impossible, and that's where the real hope lies. All right, I think this is probably a good place to stop again, ending with the hope of what can change in the life of the addict, and um, we can pick it up next week uh, as we come back. Great idea, Mark, because this is too complicated and serious of a topic for us to rush through. So that's it for today. If you'd like further resources, you can visit us online at www.gracetoliveradio.org and click the podcast resource button, and we will have good resources for you there. If you'd like to ask me a question, send me an email, keith at hillside.org. I'd love to hear from you, and I do try to answer them within 24 hours. You can learn more about Hillside Church at www.hillside.org. Uh, You can look at our website. You can watch us online. You can worship with us outdoors or indoors in person. And before we go, if you are listening to some podcast platform, please give us a good rating. Please share us with your friends. If you know somebody who's struggling with addiction, tell them about this podcast. We release this podcast on Wednesday, so we hope you'll join us next time. This is Keith Crosby with Mark Stickler. Out of my mind, God bless you and keep you.